Sunday. So why don't you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I want to get right into uh, Palm Sunday today. Palm, Palm Sunday is kind of the kickoff to Holy Week. Do you ever have mixed emotions about Holy Week? Do you ever feel like you should be more excited than you are about Easter? No? You know, uh, um, Easter is, is, is kind of, it's Christianity's Super Bowl. This is the moment of the year for the church, more than Christmas, more than the, the, the time when baby Jesus was born, the time when Jesus Christ climbed on a cross and, 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 and stared down death and sin and the grave and he was victorious. This is our Super Bowl, but you know what? Sometimes I don't feel that. Sometimes I don't really feel a big gigantic yes on Easter Sunday. Now, I, I, I know that that's true. I know it intellectually, and, and I do feel it on, on certain levels. Um, I, emotionally, I'm so grateful for what Jesus Christ did. There is nothing more precious in the entire world than knowing that Jesus Christ hung on that cross for the sins of humanity, including mine. Jesus paid the price for all of our human foolishness and stupidity and our wickedness. I've been both stupid and bad in my life. And he paid the price for both. He paid the price for my rebellion, for my self-absorption, my narcissism, my lust, my, my um, stupidity. And, and the fact that he did that for me, it absolutely melts me. It absolutely um, just moves me and, and stirs me on a deep level. But I don't know about you, but I just, I still don't always feel this roar of excitement. You know, in some church traditions on Easter Sunday, the pastor or the worship leader or whoever is up here, they'll get up and they'll say to the congregation, he is risen. And, and when they say, he has arisen. The congregation is supposed to respond and say, he is risen indeed. And I guess I feel like uh, it happened last year. I think it was James or Megan or somebody said, he is risen. And I felt like I should have done one of those, you know, running leaps where I just, you know, land and he is risen. I felt like it should be a scene out of Braveheart. You know, the, it should look something like this. Doesn't it make more sense that our reaction would be a little bit more like that? But I don't know. I just, I, I feel this reflective gratitude. I guess if I really understood what was happening, if I really grasped the weight of everything that this meant, I probably would do that. Or, or I don't know, maybe I would just fall on my face in silence. But, but what I want us to do today is I want us to try and, and emotionally and imaginatively enter in a little bit deeper into um, 
Holy Week, I want us to key in on one specific moment uh, during the Passion Week. That's what we call Holy Week. We call it the Passion Week of Jesus Christ because, and I like that, because it was passion. It was love. It was a fierce commitment to the will of God and to humanity that led Jesus to the cross and kept him there during that time. Jesus went through a betrayal, an arrest, five trials, horrendous beatings, and and a gruesome crucifixion. And it was passion that kept him there. (laughs) Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm a lover, not a fighter? Have you ever heard that statement? Oh, oh no, no, I, I could, I'm a lover, not a fighter. That is the most ridiculous statement in the world because lovers make the best fighters. If you need someone to fight for you, if you need someone to step up and risk their life for you, 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 you don't go to the player in the office who likes to flirt with you. You find a mom. You find a good husband. You, you find a best friend. You find somebody that has a little bit of passion to them and would be willing to pay that kind of a price. And so um, there's a lot of different jumping off points that we could use to try and dive deeper into uh, the Passion Week. And I want to choose a moment that occurred during Jesus' betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. But before we get there, let me just remind you of the uh, incidents that happened in Passion Week leading up to this moment in the Garden, and then we'll kind of dive a little deeper in that moment Holy Week kicked off on uh, what we now call Palm Sunday, what we're commemorating today. Palm Sunday was the day that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The people were waving palm branches. They they threw their, their cloaks on the ground. And we call this his triumphal entry. And it's a little bit ironic and iconoclastic that, that this was Jesus' triumphal entry into the city because When Roman conquerors entered their capital city, when a Roman general entered the city of Rome in authority, they rode stallions. They would ride war horses and sometimes be drawn by a chariot with a team of war horses. And they would lead a massive procession. And then there was a whole um, company of slaves that they had conquered. And they would lead them into the city. When Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, entered his capital city, he was riding on a donkey. And children were shouting, Hosanna. And he led a company of fishermen and peasants and tax collectors And that occurred on Sunday. Well, for the next few days, Jesus hung around the temple and he interacted and he taught. And then on Thursday, Jesus had his famous Last Supper. And the Last Supper on Thursday was the moment where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He was uh, about to commission the leaders of the church. And so he modeled in that moment servant leadership. And it was at the Last Supper that Jesus taught them about love and taught them about the Holy Spirit. And it was also at the Last Supper where Jesus predicted his betrayal. In that intimate, wonderful friendship setting, Jesus began to be grieved, and he said, listen, one of you guys is going to betray me. And all of the guys start freaking out. And they're like, wait a minute, is is it me? Is it me? Is it him? Um, and, And Jesus said, it's the person that I take this bread and give it to after dipping it in the sauce. And so Jesus took a piece of bread, and he dipped it in the sauce, and he handed it to Judas Iscariot. 
And Judas received the bread, and then Judas played innocent. Is it me? Even though he had already betrayed Jesus. And Jesus said, yep. And the thing that you're about to do, Judas, do quickly. And then John's gospel tells us that at that moment, Satan entered into Judas. And then John tells us that it was night. So it was nighttime on Thursday, and we have come to call that night Maundy Thursday. The word Maundy is a Latin word that means command. We call this Command Thursday because that was the night when Jesus said, a new command I give you that you love one another. And after this moment occurred, Jesus left with his disciples, he was down to 11 now, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He leaves eight of them at the entry point of the garden. He goes a little deeper with Peter, James, and John, but then he himself moves into the center of the garden, and Jesus began to pray in agony. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that the weight of the sins of the world began to be placed on Jesus' shoulders. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that redemption, the rescuing, the freeing of the world from the effects of sin happened. We know this because it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus shed his first drops of blood. And we learned at the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis, all the way through into the New Testament in Romans, that sin always brings death. And so the price tag of sin is death. And so it was in the garden when Jesus felt the weight of the sins of the world on him so heavily that it began to, to crush the light out, life out of him, and he begins to sweat blood. And this phenomenon of having your capillaries burst along your forehead and your temple so that sweat and blood mingle together is a very rare but a documented medical condition called hematohydrosis. It only occurs in very severe instances of stress, like when a soldier in a foxhole is staring down their imminent death. And hematohydrosis has a very horrifying effect on the body. It causes the body to become hypersensitive to touch or pain. So when hematohydrosis has worked in the system for a couple of hours, a gentle touch feels like a punch. And, uh, and um, it's the opposite of anesthesia. Anesthesia numbs the pain. Hematohydrosis enhances the pain. And so Jesus Christ <clears throat> goes through five trials where he has punched, kicked, slapped, spit upon. A crown of thorns is pressed into his skull, and then they beat him on the head with sticks. He's whipped, flogged, scourged, and nailed to a cross all while hematohydrosis is making his body hypersensitive to pain. And so it makes sense that in the garden, as he's preparing for this, Jesus would pray, Father, if there's any other way, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Let's do this another way if possible. And then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, I can pray that or say that prayer in about three seconds. It took Jesus several hours to get to the place of being able to pray that prayer. In fact, at one point, we're told that an angel from heaven literally appeared and poured strength into Jesus to get him to the place where he could say, nevertheless, 
not my will, but your will be done. Well, Jesus finishes his prayer time. He secures the necessary assistance from heaven to go through with the calling and the task, and he wakes up his disciples. The disciples had fallen asleep, and before we're too um, judgy toward the disciples, we have to remember the gospels say they fell asleep because they were so sorrowful. It says they were sleeping from sorrow. They were broken and grieved about what was going to happen. Grief brings exhaustion, by the way. So he wakes up his disciples, and then on cue, stay with me in the narrative here, on cue, Judas Iscariot shows up and betrays him with a kiss. Judas appears leading soldiers and guards, and he says, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kisses Jesus on the cheek to identify him to the guards. After he's kissed, Jesus steps in front of his followers and he says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And in John's version, in John 6, Jesus says, I am he. And when he says, I am he, the force of his personality hits the guards like bowling pins and they all fall to the ground. That, that's a personality. I think Jessica has a big personality. That's a personality that you just say, yeah, I am he, and poof, the whole group falls to the ground. <clears throat> and then Jesus says, hey, if you're looking for me, let these men go. <clears throat> and when Jesus says that, pandemonium breaks out. A sword fight erupts in the garden, and Simon Peter, who has a sword under his robe, whips out his sword and hacks off the right ear of Malchus, who was the servant of the high priest. Now, if you're in a sword fight defending Jesus in the garden, you're not aiming for somebody's ear. Hey, tip your head just a little bit. You know, let me, let me flick that. No, he was going for his head. But Malchus had some reflexes and he dodged. Now, there's a whole sermon here that I'll just touch on. Under Old Testament Mosaic law, when someone sold themselves or submitted themselves to indentured servitude, a gold ring was pierced through their right earlobe. And a gold ring in the right earlobe was a symbol of perpetual servitude. And so when Peter hacks off the right ear of the servant of the high priest, Peter shaved off the symbol of the man's slavery. And then in Luke's version, Luke the physician, who is ever a stickler for details, Luke tells us that Jesus reached down in that moment and touched his ear and healed him. He didn't pick up the ear and stick it back on, and he just touched him and healed him. And so when Jesus, who came to make all things new, touched this bloody head and restored the ear, the, the, the slavery was gone. So, oh my gosh, Jesus is being betrayed by one of his closest friends. With hematohydrosis working through his system, he's already uncomfortable. And there's a sword fight, and in that moment, Jesus brings peace. And he restores a man, and he heals him of his slavery. Oh, my gosh. And, and it's at this moment that I want us to, to jump off today. So let's look at Mark 14, verse 43. It says, Just as he was speaking... Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. 
The men seized Jesus and arrested him, and then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said, that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Verse 51, here's our message today. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled away naked, leaving his garment behind him. Hmm, Uh, who was this young man who ran away naked from the garden? I I want us to talk about this naked guy for a few minutes. In fact, if you're taking notes and you want a sermon title, the title of our Palm Sunday message is The Naked Guy. Karen asked me if I wanted any images to go along with the title, and I said, no, that's okay. We don't need any images. Um, We we, we don't know who this naked guy was. Now, there are a couple of prominent theories about who the naked guy was, but the text doesn't tell us. What the text tells us is that he was young, and the text tells us that he was young wearing a linen garment. Now, in that day, outer garments were typically made of wool, and it was, um, so the linen garment would have been probably undergarments, kind of like my my V-neck t-shirts that I live in when I'm home and away from people. Uh, It's more realistic that that these were his pajamas. Is it pajamas or pajamas? Jammies? Um, So he's wearing his undergarments, he's wearing his pajamas, And somebody grabs him by the the clothes and he wiggles away. He's so desperate to leave. He steps out of his pajamas and he streaks away naked from the garden. Um, You kind of get the impression of maybe a boy in his jammies who sneaks out to follow the men as they're marching away for this prayer time in the garden. And then he gets to the garden and he kind of gets in over his head and somebody grabs him and he just is small and slippery and, you know, wiggles away and is able to run. Now, the most prominent theory in biblical scholarship about who this guy is, is that this guy was Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. And so often, and maybe most often, people believe that Mark was anonymously narrating himself into the story. And he doesn't say, I was the naked guy, but maybe he was the naked guy. People believe that John was, or excuse me, Mark was the son of a wealthy family and that they owned the building that had the upper room where Jesus and his followers did the Last Supper. And if that's the case, then you kind of get this imagery of a little boy in his jammies who's kind of eavesdropping on what the adults are doing, and then when they head out to the garden, he slips out and he follows them, and he's on his way with them. Now, traditionally, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, so Mark, who might have been the naked guy, but we're not quite sure, Mark was also John Mark, who shows up in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, have, um, they had um, traveled and, and gone on the mission field and planted churches, and Barnabas wants, and Paul want to go back and revisit the churches. But earlier on their mission trip, they had taken John Mark with them. And it got a little bit dicey, got a little bit dangerous at one point, and Mark bailed out on them. 
Mark wimped out and he ran away. So Mark not only ran away from Jesus in the garden, he also ran away from Paul and Barnabas on the mission field. And so when Paul says, hey, let's go revisit these places where we went, Barnabas is like, hey, that's awesome. And I have an idea. Let's give John Mark a second chance. Let's take Mark with us. And Paul goes ballistic. And you can read about it in Acts 15. Paul flips out. Paul says, no way. So Paul and Barnabas argue, they clash, they fight, and they break up. And Paul takes Silas, and he leaves. And Barnabas takes John Mark, and he leaves. And the duo split up. You know what's awesome, though, and I love this, is that at the end of Paul's life, Paul changes his tune about John Mark. Uh, the last letter that Paul ever wrote was 2 Timothy. And at the end of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, everyone's abandoned me. I only have Luke here. And then he says, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. And then Peter loved this guy as well. In fact, um, it's commonly believed and accepted that Mark was the scribe who translated Peter's message about Jesus. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're actually reading Peter's account. So Peter spoke to Mark, and then Mark took notes on Peter's sermons about Jesus and created the Gospel of Mark. And that kind of makes sense, because we know from the Gospels that Peter was passionate and fiery and quick to act and quick to move. And when you read Mark, Jesus is seen the same way. There's only 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and yet the word immediately shows up about 45 times. All through the Gospel of Mark, immediately Jesus appeared. Immediately Jesus moved on. You're almost breathless when you read the Gospel of Mark. It's fast-paced. It's intense. It's just like Peter. Well, <clears throat> Peter loved Mark. At the end of his letter in 1 Peter 5, 13, Peter's sending greetings to everyone, and he says, um, everyone with me sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. So John Mark finally grew up, and Aren't you glad that people can eventually grow up? It, it takes some people longer than others to eventually grow up. But aren't you glad that somebody who runs away in their youth can actually um, come full circle in their older age? In fact, we know from church history that John Mark eventually became the first bishop of the church in Alexandria. That was the prominent city in Egypt. And as an old man, as the bishop of this influential church, John Mark was arrested. And he was given an opportunity to renounce his faith in Jesus and be set free. And when he ran in the garden and he ran on the mission field, he's presented with another opportunity to run. But in his old age, he didn't run. He stood his ground and he was martyred. You know how they martyred him? They tied a rope around his neck and they drug him around until he died from being strangled. But um, the naked guy might have been John Mark, and that's what's commonly believed, that Mark was anonymously narrating himself into the story, kind of like what Quentin Tarantino does in his films, or what Stan Lee does in the Marvel films. Or, or has anybody ever read Clive Cussler? Clive Cussler is this great fiction writer. Um, he has a series called the Dirk Pitt Novels. In every single Dirk Pitt novel, Clive writes himself into the story. So there's always a moment where the hero, Dirk, rounds a corner and he meets Clive Cussler, the author. So it might have been Mark narrating himself into the story. But here's another theory. The other theory about who the naked guy is, 
And this theory has gotten some traction. It's some pretty widespread acceptance is this. Many scholars believe that whether or not it was Mark, it may have been Mark, it might not have been Mark, but whether it was Mark or not, that Mark was also narrating the church into the story. That Mark was prophetically um, looking down the road and thinking about the church and that Mark um, figuratively uh, and, and metaphorically wrote the church into the story. And so the naked guy in the garden was the church. And if that's the case, then we could also say that the naked guy was you. And on one level, that kind of makes sense because we've all ran away from him. We've all abandoned our post when we were supposed to hold steady. We've all been unfaithful in certain areas of our lives. That's why we need him. That's why we need a savior and a rescuer. We've all failed him. In fact, verse 50 said, everyone deserted him and fled. But on a much higher level, Here's why some people believe that the naked guy is the church. What is one of the primary purposes of the church? Why does the church exist? And you don't have to here, quit, quit shouting your answers at me. You, you, um, just, just think, you don't, you don't have to tell me your answers. Just think about it for a second. Why does the church exist? We're probably all thinking about different reasons, and we're probably all correct on different levels. But when we think about the great commandments, love God, love people, and the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples, and when we think about all the things that, that Paul wrote in his letters about the church, we can summarize and say that the purpose of the church is to serve as a witness to the resurrection. The church exists to testify to the world that what Jesus said and did was true. He was not a, a good moral teacher only. He was not a delusional rabbi who thought he was the Messiah. No, Jesus Christ was the son of the living God, the savior of the world, who not only died on a cross and was buried but who rose again on Easter, defeating death, defeating sin, and ascended back to the Father in heaven from where he works his eternal purposes in the world through the Holy Spirit. The church exists to testify to that. Now, hold that thought. Okay, this is all taking us somewhere. So hold that thought in your mind and, and look at a very interesting passage just a couple of chapters later in Mark chapter 16. In Mark 16 verse 1, it says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Wow, two chapters earlier, Mark tells us about a, a young man who gets his robe ripped off of him, and he runs away from Jesus. Now, two chapters later, he's showing us a picture of a young man clothed in a white robe, as close to Jesus as he could possibly get. Now, 
Luke tells us that there were two men in clothes and that these men gleamed like lightning and they filled everybody with terror. But this guy's different. Now, remember with me. Eyewitnesses of an incident always give different versions of the story. So my dad was a cop, and I've known since I was a kid that every cop and every attorney will tell you that an eyewitness will always give a different version of the story from another eyewitness. Because eyewitnesses constantly highlight, illuminate, and omit different things. So Luke tells us about two terrifying angels. Um, John tells us about two people, but they're not scary at all in John's version. Matthew tells us about one angel that ripped away the stone, and he was so intense, the guards passed out when they looked at him. Uh, When you read your Bible and you read the Gospels and you see these differences, don't ever think, well, well, this... This, this, is, this doesn't line up. It can't be accurate. No, it's more accurate because it doesn't line up. If all of the witnesses said exactly the same thing, that would speak to a conspiracy among the witnesses. We got to make sure everything we say is exactly right. No, the, the gospels are eyewitness accounts. And, and when we get to Mark's version of the story, Mark writes about a young man dressed in a white robe. And regardless of how many there were, or if it was an angel or a man, Mark's imagery immediately makes us hearken back to another young man in a white robe who was afraid and ran away from Jesus in his moment of need. So regardless of whether Mark's young man was Mark himself, or whether it was the church or not, and regardless of whether it was an angel or a person, Mark's choice of language says something to us. Before the cross, there was a young man who was so desperate to get away from Jesus that he ran away naked. After the cross, there was a young man who was clothed. His nakedness was covered. And he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And when the women showed up to an empty tomb, who was the eyewitness to the resurrection? The only person that we know of that was an actual eyewitness to what occurred was this young man clothed in a white robe. Now, one more time, what's the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to serve as a witness to the resurrection. Do you remember that scene from Revelation 7 where the Apostle John sees a picture of the church? Why don't you find Revelation 7 while the worship team um, rejoins me? In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, John says in the middle of his vision, in the middle of his revelation, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. Now, the most widely accepted interpretation of this verse is that John was seeing a picture of the church. He was seeing believers in Christ from every ethnicity, every background, every place on our planet. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory 
wisdom, thanks, honor, power, and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these here in the white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. You know, it's possible that Mark was connecting the Garden of Gethsemane with the Garden of Eden when he told us this story. Because there was nakedness in both gardens. And, and when sin entered the world, the very first thing that happened was that Adam and Eve realized their naked condition and they ran away. So Mark in the garden was not the first person to run away naked. The first people were the first people to run away naked because with the realization of sin comes a realization of fallenness and brokenness and shame. In fact, I just learned this. I didn't even know this until this week. In the early church, and I I tried to do research to make sure it was true. In the early church, I didn't know that men and women had to be baptized separately. I knew they were baptized separately, but I didn't know why. They were baptized separately because for a period of time, people in the early church were baptized naked. Now, we know this is true because there are tons and tons of ancient paintings of baptismal ceremonies that we have from the early church. And in all of those paintings, the men and women are separate and they're nude because there is a nakedness that comes from sin, but there's also a nakedness that comes from new birth. We're born naked. And these disciples realized that when we step into the waters of baptism, we're leaving everything behind and we're becoming new creations um, in Christ. And so there's a nakedness of sin and there's a nakedness of new birth. And Mark not only narrates us into the garden, where nakedness makes us run away. He also narrates us into the tomb where there's a nakedness of new birth and a covering and where the new creation gets the final word. And then this is kind of fun. Scholars surmise that the garment covering the young man was the burial cloth that covered Jesus. Now, we don't know that. And we don't need to know that. There's a lot of surmising and a lot of speculation and we don't need any of that guessing or that speculation to fill our hearts with awe and amazement and wonder because we have betrayed we have run away we've been so desperate to get away from Jesus that we've we've wiggled out of his grip and we've ran and and we have been ashamed and we have desperately needed Easter Sunday where love one and where uh, our failures were defeated and our defeats were defeated and where Paul's words were fulfilled in 1 Corinthians 15 where it says, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting?